So there was a lot this week, wasn't there, to look at in the book of Luke? Um, I'm not going to be talking about all of it. So if you have any questions and you want to talk to me, come on up afterwards and I'll be happy to talk to you. Um, we're finally at the event that Luke's been preparing us for since chapter 9. Jesus has come to Jerusalem at last. After thousands of years of longing and waiting, God's plan of salvation is starting to come. And Jesus is carefully orchestrating everything that happens during this week. At the beginning of chapter 19, in our last lesson, I guess that was two weeks ago, Jesus explained to a group of people, including his disciples, who thought the kingdom was going to come immediately, that there would be a delay. He had to go away and return. But it seems like no one really understood. So let's read Luke 19, 28 to 40. And when he'd said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go to the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, the people's expectations were high. Crowds of people had thronged to Jerusalem for Passover, Remember, this was the week before Passover. And this Passover especially, because everyone had heard about Jesus, this great miracle worker. He was famous in all Israel by this time. Great crowds were there wondering, will he come up to the feast? Is this the Lord's Messiah? Is he going to come at last? Well, Jesus was making a definite statement with his entry. He was declaring that he was the king the Lord's Messiah, the one anointed by God. The Jewish people knew their Bibles. They knew the prophecy of Zechariah, which commanded them to praise and rejoice because the king had come, righteous and having salvation, seated on the colt of a donkey. They knew the story of David and Solomon, that when David decreed that Solomon would be the next king, he set him on a donkey and sent him off to be crowned. Jesus' declaration was obvious to them. He was the promised king from the line of David, who would have an everlasting kingdom that had been promised to David. Well, how do we know? How do we know they understood? Well, we know because of what they did and what they said. They spread their garments on the ground before him, just like the men of Israel had done when God sent Elisha the prophet to anoint Jehu, the king of Israel, 
It was an act of submission. It was symbolically placing themselves under the feet of their leader. The other Gospels tell us that they waved palm branches. Palm branches had become the national symbol of Israel. This happened in the time period between the Old and New Testaments when the Maccabees had expelled the Greek oppressors from the land of Israel and Israel had gained their freedom again. So they waved palm branches to celebrate independence just like we'd wave a flag at a 4th of July parade. They shouted words from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is part of the Egyptian Hallel, the Egyptian praise songs, 113 to 118, and they were always sung at Passover and Tabernacles. In Psalm 118, the singer of the psalm uh, talks about how God has defeated his enemies and he's coming to the temple to give praise. And the actual quote from Psalm 118 is, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But instead of he who comes, the people shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Everyone understood that Jesus was declaring himself to be the Davidic king. So this week, we looked at two groups of people. And that's really what I want to talk about this week, because there's a lot of application in there, at least there was for me. Two groups of people who reacted to Jesus. To one group, Jesus' coming was wonderful, and it caused them to rejoice and praise God. To the other group, Jesus was a threat and a danger, and they emphatically rejected him, even plotted to kill him. But both groups had one thing in common. Neither of them understood Jesus' purpose or their own real need. So let's take a look at the two groups. First, the people who were rejoicing. Luke says these were his disciples. And I know in the sermon I gave you, the preacher who's talking makes a big point about these were his disciples, they weren't the people who shouted crucify him. But in John's gospel, there's a large crowd who comes out from Jerusalem to meet him. These were not his disciples. And some of them who were in that crowd that day were the same people who would be shouting a week later, crucify him. The people had high expectations of the Messiah. Most of them were looking for a political Messiah, a king like David who would triumph over Israel's enemies, who would bring in a kingdom of great peace and prosperity They knew the prophecy in Isaiah 11 about a Davidic king, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who would establish a righteous kingdom where even the animals would live in peace, where the the enemies of Israel would all be destroyed by the breath from the mouth of the king. And here he was. What they didn't understand, that this was a prophecy of Jesus' second coming, not his first. So at this point in history, Israel had been oppressed by Rome for 100 years. Rome appointed and deposed kings and rulers in Israel, some of them not even Jewish. Rome chose the high priest. In Jesus' day, Annas had been high priest, and then two of his sons, 
and now his son-in-law Caiaphas was high priest, all chosen by Rome. Rome demanded taxes as much and as often as they wanted. And Rome stationed soldiers throughout the land to keep the peace. Um, they did it, often with great brutality, and crucifixion was something that was fairly common in those days, anyone who disturbed the peace. So the Jews were expecting a Messiah to lead them to victory over their Roman oppressors. And Jesus seemed to them to be exactly the kind of king they needed. After all, think about what they'd seen. He healed the sick of all kinds of illness and disease. So a soldier wounded in battle could be healed immediately, get right back in the field. He fed 5,000 men from a lunchbox that wouldn't need to worry about supplies. He'd even raised people from the dead. Imagine a warrior who couldn't stay dead. The great war machine that was Rome would have to fall before this king leading that kind of army. They were indestructible and victory was certain. Israel would again be free and thriving and unbeatable. The king had come and he was going to save them from Rome. And they welcomed him with great rejoicing. But Jesus, who knew their hearts, wept over them. The word wept here is a very strong word. It doesn't mean a little tear trickling down his cheek. It means to mourn, to lament, to wail. He knew they were looking for the wrong kind of peace. They were looking for peace with Rome, but they wouldn't find it. And 40 years from this time, they would be totally destroyed. Jerusalem burned to the ground, the temple gone, the people scattered. They didn't understand their real need, which was not peace with Rome, it was peace with God. So how does this section apply to us? We're not looking for salvation from a political oppressor. Well, not yet anyway. In the light of the recent election and reactions to it, I was tempted to talk about the way we, and I mean we in the church, seem to be looking for a political messiah, just as these people were. The most obvious application is that the government is not your savior. The Bible has a lot to say about government, and I kind of went on a rabbit trail there, but we don't have time to talk about it all this morning. And I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the issue here. Yes, they wanted a king to defeat Rome. They wanted a political savior. But they wanted that because underneath that desire were a whole lot of felt needs. They wanted happiness. They wanted freedom. They wanted peace. They wanted security. And these aren't bad things. These are very good things put in our heart by a good God. But when we try to obtain those things without God and use them in place of God, they become idols. The people here were not seeking holiness or obedience or God. They were seeking an external worldly solution to their problems. Get rid of Rome, and everything will be fine. And it made me think about how I do the same thing. If I'm honest, I think we all do the same thing. We take good things God has given us, like marriage, family, freedom, good health, a nice place to live, 
education, and we turn them into idols. We turn them into things we look to for security and love and happiness instead of looking to God. And then, where do we turn when these things let us down? Because they will let us down. Do we turn to God in repentance? Or do we turn away from him in bitterness? These things will let us down. Did you learn anything about your heart this year when we were in a 12-month lockdown? I did. A lot of my idols came tumbling down. So God says in his word that he disciplines those he loves. And I'm glad he does, because idols can't sustain us. So the second group of people, let's look at them. These were the Pharisees, and in chapter 20, they were joined by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Sadducees. All the religious leadership of Israel come together against Jesus. They were looking for a religious messiah. I don't mean a righteous messiah. I mean a religious messiah, one who appreciates all the trappings of religion. They were expecting a messiah who would pat them on the back and say, good job, this is exactly what God requires of you. And instead, they got Jesus. He had a lot to say about them. He said they were hypocrites. That's a term that refers to Greek actors. They wore a mask and acted a part. They acted righteous, but inside they were twisted and rotten. They were proud, exalting themselves above those tax collectors and sinners, and even above the common people. They were lovers of money, money and all that it brings with it, possessions, prestige, influence, deference. They loved those things. They cared more about the opinion of God than they did about men. They did not know their scriptures, which I thought was interesting because they were the people in Israel who were most familiar with the word of God. And yet they were the people in Israel furthest away from the God of the word. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, treating others with contempt. They thought that by keeping all these little laws, they were pleasing God. But like the older brother of the prodigal, they were checking off a checklist and their hearts were far from their father. They too were worshiping idols. Idols of self, idols of appearance, idols of money and power, idols of religious activity. And they hated Jesus. They wanted to kill him. The big question to this to Jesus is this in chapter 20, by whose authority are you doing these things? And that's the question, isn't it? Who has the authority? Who gave you the authority to declare yourself king over us? Who gave you the authority to determine how we'd worship? Who gave you the authority to teach and to preach this exclusive gospel? But they weren't actually asking Jesus these questions. They didn't want an answer. They thought they had the answer. What they're really saying to Jesus is this, we have the authority. We have the authority to determine what goes on in the temple. We have the authority to declare by scripture who's the Messiah. We have the authority to teach. 
We have the authority to tell people how to get saved. How dare you interfere with us? And that was their attitude. They were looking for a Messiah who would affirm their own religiosity. And he was not going to let them get away with externals. So how does this apply to us today? Pharisees are no longer around, are they? Well, I have a confession. Hello, my name is Sue, and I am a recovering Pharisee. <laughs> if I'm honest, I think we all are. Do I question Jesus' authority? Yes, every time I sin, I'm questioning Jesus' authority. I'm stomping my foot just like a toddler and saying, you're not the boss over me. Am I a hypocrite? Sometimes. Does my inside match my outside? Not always. I was reading something or listening to something this week by a pastor who was talking about the thought bubble. You know how in a cartoon the character sometimes has a bubble over his head and you can see what he's thinking? And how grateful he was that the thought bubble's not a real thing. <laughs> and I thought, me too! What if everyone could see what I was thinking all the time? I'm glad my hypocrisy is not that visible. Am I proud? Sometimes. Do I love money? Sometimes. Do I keep a checklist? Well, don't we all really keep a checklist? Do I pray? Check. Do I go to church every Sunday? Check. Do I go to Wednesday night? Check. Do I have quiet time? Check. Do I read my Bible? Check. Do I teach Sunday school? I think we get two checks for that one, two checks. <laughs> And our hearts are thinking all the time that this gives us some kind of merit before God. But it's dangerous. It makes us just like the Pharisees. It makes us judgmental. It makes us self-righteous. And it keeps us from turning to the one who can actually give us what we need. But praise God that he's not content to let us sit in this sin and idolatry. He's made a way to save us. Now remember, all of this happened in Luke chapter 20 during the week before Passover. So by entering Jerusalem the way he did, Jesus was pre presenting himself to the people as king. But by entering Jerusalem when he did, he was presenting himself to the people as the Passover lamb. I don't know if you remember back when we studied Exodus, it seems like 100 years ago, we learned that God commanded the people to take a lamb and to get this lamb on the 10th of the first month, bring it into their homes, and live with this lamb until it was slain on the 14th as the Passover sacrifice. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was coming as the Lamb of God. All the people would have been busy at that very time getting their Passover lambs and taking them into their homes. And here was Jesus, the Passover lamb, riding into Jerusalem, the home of his people, declaring that the Lord's Messiah was also the Passover lamb. He was coming to Jerusalem to die, to set his people free from bondage. The people didn't need a new government, they needed a new heart. They needed the hearts of stone to be replaced by hearts of flesh. They needed hearts that could respond to God. They didn't need new rules and religious ceremonies. They needed a new life. They needed a new birth. 
They needed to be made new so that they would love to follow the rules of God. They needed a way to be forgiven and restored. And Jesus came to Jerusalem that week to give them and to give us that way, what we really need. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our Messiah, who is also our Passover lamb. Give us the faith and sight to truly see him as he is. Lord, our hearts are set upon worshiping the idols of this world. Help us to see ourselves as we really are and help us to turn to the only one who can help us. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us one who has taken our sin. Thank you that we can turn to him in repentance and be restored. And we ask this in his name. Amen.